Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the innovators and entrepreneurs building the future of health. I'm India Edwards. This week on the podcast, we sat down with Chrissy Farr, a health tech investor at Omer's Ventures, where she focuses on women's health and behavior health. In this interactive chat, Chrissy talked about her priorities for the remainder of the year, including focus areas of women's and behavioral health, as well as her experience making the change from being a full-time journalist covering the health tech beat at major publications like CNBC and Fast Company to a venture capitalist, and how all of that has impacted her view on company storytelling. She also gave the inside scoop on Omer's ventures and how to position yourself to get on her and the broader company's radar. Enjoy. Uh, this week, we're honored to have Chrissy Farr, a principal investor at Omer's Venture, where she focuses on health tech, specifically uh, women's health and behavioral health. Today, we're going to learn about her new role at Omer's, but also about how her work as a journalist informs that role and how she thinks about the storytelling that is so important to the startup uh, journey. So Chrissy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Logan. So when we last saw you in person, at least, uh, you were on the Startup Health Festival stage and you were, you were interviewing somebody else in your role as a uh, correspondent for CNBC. So now you, you list yourself on Twitter, I think, as a former journalist and you are a health tech investor. So catch us up on that career uh, shift and kind of what, what led to that. Yeah, it's, it's a great question um, and something that I've been asked about, you know, a fair bit since I joined because the, the path that I had into venture is, is fairly non-traditional, although there certainly are people with journalism backgrounds doing, doing the job. Um, so, you know, I had been doing the journalism thing for quite a while, um, started out in around 2011, have been in health tech um, since, you know, the beginning, basically, which was also... The early days of, of digital health so i just i remember being at the first rock health conferences and um when it was still an accelerator i don't know if anyone remembers that and um and we i actually launched a, a conference when i was at venture beat which is the first uh, place that i worked called health beat and that was where companies like grand rounds uh pitched for the first time and and you guys know um where, where grand rounds is at now um so I felt like I had been a part of the industry that I had spent most of my 20s covering digital health, being a part of it, grew up with the industry. Um, and eventually it just got to the point where I felt like I was extremely embedded in it um, and that, you know, those were my people. A lot of a lot of my close friends had come from digital health. And so I, I wanted to take on a new role where I could work much more closely with people, where we could have candid conversations where I could be much more explicitly on the team on the side of, of the founder um, versus kind of in my journalism role when I was I felt like I was on the outside. Um, and, you know, the stories that you would hear about companies would be very glossed over in many ways. I'm sure you've all been trained to kind of tell the best version of your business to, to journalists. But, you know, I felt like I, I wanted to hear the real story and I wanted to be, I wanted to participate in conversations uh, around, you know, where things are not going well and be helpful um, where, where I could. Um, and I'd also seen VCs be mostly male and invest in, you know, areas over and over and over again um, that I was, 
not as excited about kind of to, to cover as a journalist. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try this investing thing and I'm going to try to bring in women and I'm going to try to do invest in companies that I felt were being overlooked. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do here. And, you know, I've heard that it takes a decade to figure out if you're any good. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to place some bets on the, on the board. Um, and it'll take some time to figure out if any of them will work, but, um, I'm enjoying the challenge so far. That's awesome. Well, we'll talk about those bets you've placed and kind of where your head's at in, in that regard. But um, talk to us about Omer's Ventures, where you ended up. Um, you know, teach us about what the company looks to invest in broadly, and then we can talk more about your personal uh, hopes and your thesis uh, secondarily. But uh, Omer's Ventures in general, give us the um, the overview. Yeah, of course. Um, so if you, if anybody here is Canadian, you may know of OMAS because it's one of the, the biggest pension funds in Canada. Um, and they have a, you know, a lot of different types of assets um, in the portfolio of which venture is one of them. So I work for OMAS Ventures and, uh, you know, we have about a billion to invest across three geos. So we invest out of Canada, out of the UK, and then here in the Bay Area. And each team is extremely different and was built up um, to sort of model the, the needs of that specific geo. Um, so within the Bay Area, we, we invest in, in four areas, um, digital health, insurance, prop tech, and B2B SaaS, um, because, you know, you got to invest in B2B SaaS if you're out here. But digital health is, is the, the team that, that I'm on. Um, and I've been really fortunate to get to kind of help us figure out what strategy we want to proceed with. And um, my uh, my boss who runs the fund out here in the US is a guy called Michael Yang, who comes from Comcast Ventures. And um, those of you who have been in digital health for a long time will probably know that Comcast um, was kind of the most innovative company for a while on the employer benefit side, which is kind of shocking <laughs> for a, a juggernaut, you know, not exactly known for innovation, but for a long time was the company that if you were in digital health that you'd want to get in front of because they were taking the, the bets. Um, and so Michael was, was a participant in that, um, very much in the middle of it. And that's how I got to know him. And so when he had a role come open and asked me if I was interested, it was, it was a no brainer. How big is that health tech uh, team and focus for Omers? You said that's a one piece of the San Francisco um, geo. It's a big focus um, because of our, you know, the fact that we only invest across four areas. Um, and then the team is myself and Michael, and then we're bringing on a third person. So we are, we are a small and lean team. <laughs> um, the strategy that we have that that may be somewhat differentiated from other funds is that we go really heads down into one theme within digital health for about six months. And at the end of that process, we, we look to, to make an investment. So the goal is to you know, have a meeting with the founder and have already done months of months of homework so that the questions that we ask might be less high level and, and more kind of in the weeds and that we you know feel like we actually know a little bit like enough to be dangerous um on that topic so that's how we're doing things and oh, if everyone can uh mute themselves that would be awesome i will um my apologies there no worries got it uh, how unique, I was just, you know, that strategy seems like one that was tailor-made for someone with your skill set. I, I, I'm sure you love that, that research focus and that, um, like, 
uh, how unique is that in the market in your mind? It's um, it's definitely you know not entirely unique. I see I see other funds doing that, and I think there's a pressure to do it now more than ever because there's so much competition. And and how do you sort of distinguish yourself from other funds? Um, so I think it's getting more and more challenging to be a, a super generalist that just sees everything and kind of invests you know across the board. Um, I think there's been more of a focus, um, at least from what I've seen, and just like deep specialization because founders from from you know a lot of founders want to work with VCs who actually kind of get what they're doing um, and have uh, some some basis of of knowledge and I think that's that's good and that's how it should be um, so again not unique but um, but I I like it it appeals to me um, I I'm a big fan of doing the research and you know making the calls and you know, if we're looking at a space like mental health, it doesn't just mean meeting with companies. It means talking to therapists. It means talking to health plans. It means talking to patients. It's everybody within the industry. And so, you know, I might walk up to a, a meeting with a founder and have a viewpoint based on, you know, talking to 20 people with substance use disorders um, who are patients like living with this condition versus just like having looked at like a high level kind of market map or something like that. Um, and I think I think that's appreciated. Um, you know, it may very much depend on the on the personality of the founder, but you know, that's that's kind of my the way that I like to do things. Um, oh, I just yeah. got a question about stage. Um, thanks for asking. It's um, A, B, and C, and we we do a little bit of seed as well. That's a good segue into talking about your your personal focus. Uh, I know you've written a fair amount on uh, your Substack about uh, women's health and about behavioral health and how even though money is pouring into digital health, there are still these big gaps in, in access, big gaps in, in care. Um, and so I wonder if you could just take each of those, since you have done all this research, we'll start with behavioral health and then we can talk about women's health. Um, and maybe you could outline what you see as the biggest market gaps uh, that maybe even folks in this call might be working towards filling uh, or startups in general are are trying to address. So behavioral health, where do you see the biggest gaps? Um, I see the biggest gaps in behavioral health as everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, unless you're like a very wealthy, you know, professional uh, living in a, a, a major city who's got tons of time to spend hours going on psychology today, um, finding potential therapists, emailing them and getting, you know, told by nine out of 10 that they don't have space. Um, you are underserved by the current system. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, the, the funding that has gone in um, to mental health should mean that we all just back away and say, oh, it's overdone, it's crowded. Um, you know, there's, there's small gaps and big gaps, but like across the board, I think we need to invest so much more. I mean, we're talking about a deficit of decades um, of investment into, into mental health, both in the private and public sector. So the little bit that we've done in the past year, because we've realized that with COVID, that it's actually a huge problem, doesn't even scratch the surface for me. Um, so, you know, I'm, I can, I plan to, to dig in here because I haven't seen any area yet where I've said we've done a good job. <laughs> Sure. Um, <laughs> On an optimistic side, what what types of uh, companies are actually getting you excited in terms of of moving the needle, whether it's on access or uh, quality? Yeah, um, I actually, you know, having spent a lot of time here, I, I have a particular affinity for some of the companies that are more specialized and they 
treat um, a specific condition, um, I'm particularly interested in more severe mental illness because I think that is the most underserved. Um, so companies like Equip in the eating disorder space, like NoCD that focuses on OCD, um, I think those are, in my mind, um, standouts uh, from the, the current batch of, of companies because there are, you know, when you look at providers across the country, there are so few um, that are trained to even be able to effectively manage these conditions. So it, we need these companies both to be administering, administering care and hiring a lot of these folks, but then at the same time doing the training so that the next generation has many more, more, more resources available to them. So I like that batch of companies um, in particular, but I also um, am spending a lot of time in the substance use area and trying to understand kind of what some of the great businesses are there. Um, also kids and teens, um, we've only recently seen any investment going towards companies that specialize in, in young adult and pediatric mental health, but the, the numbers are just staggering. And uh, we know that if you can catch um, a disease before the age of 14 and, and treat it, that the outcomes are way better than just focusing on adults. So I think those businesses as well. Um, and if I had a sort of question that I'm, I'll share with you just kind of the question that I'm, I'm mulling in my mind with those companies, and that's you know, what's the role of the school? And are we gonna to start to see digital health for the first time? Um, think about kind of a new, a new kind of go-to-market strategy around schools, um, typically been the purview of, of ed tech, but I wouldn't be surprised to see kind of digital health going in that direction too. Yeah, I, I, I've had the same question myself, and it's fascinating to see the school uh, in some places start to become a, a node of care, a, a central uh, place for, health records and health, um, uh, just, just healthcare in general, and really elevating the role of the school nurse, even who really understands the student, understands their social determinants of health, and uh, just thinking of them more holistically. Uh, let's move on to your focus in women's health. You've written extensively on this, uh, also an area that has been talked about quite a bit over the last year, but uh, needs uh, massive more investment. So if you could characterize kind of some of the areas that you think there are significant gaps and where there are opportunities for startups to step into some of those. Um, absolutely. So having just had a baby, I'm this, this one is congratulations. Me. Thank you. Um, I was shocked by how awful it was. <laughs> it was a completely different experience that I would have had in the UK had I had my baby there. I mean, it's, like I had a really good experience relative to I think a lot of a lot of mothers, and it was still just shocking. I mean, they send you home with a baby in this country, and they don't check in on you for weeks. I didn't get, I didn't see anybody until it was six weeks after I'd given birth. And by that point, by the way, this is when most postpartum complications happen, so we just don't catch them. And as a result, we have a maternal mortality rate in the U.S. on par with Latvia and Oman. I mean, seriously, like it's just so bad. Um, and a lot of it is just the way that payment works. Like the, the OBs are just not incentivized, unfortunately, to do this, this postpartum care, even prepartum, there are huge limitations because the way that they're all paid is retroactive, retroactive. So after the baby's born, then they get kind of a bundled payment. So it's just, yeah, it's a complete mess. Um, 
so much to do um, and so many more investments that, that could be made in this space. And I, if I think if we'd had more women, like frankly, in digital health for the past 10 years and more female investors, we probably would have done a lot of this sooner than we did. Um, I used to hear when I was in journalism all the time from, from male VCs that like, they would, you know, meet with a women's health company and then they would go and talk to their wives about it. And I'm like, seriously, like, that's how you see like all women, like being represented by the experience of your wife. Like, you know, you guys need to do <laughs> a lot more than that because you're not catching the diversity of experiences faced sure. by, faced by women in this country. So, um, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, I, as you can tell, I have strong opinions about this. Yeah. I, I wrote about it in my my newsletter um and uh you know i i think there's great people doing incredible work and i'm so grateful to the you know especially the nurses and my ob was incredible and i i think that those people are just phenomenal they're heroes but they're working in a an incredibly broken system and they're doing the best they can are there other areas of women's health that are, are particularly exciting to you right now um beyond prenatal postnatal care um that you're you're doing research in yeah, we um we did make an investment, which I'm excited to share with you guys when it's all done. <laughs> um, so I'll update you. But I think the thing that I'm I'm excited about is um, a community. Um, so how do we, as you know, new mothers? How do we, as women going through menopause, as women going through cardiovascular disease, and and anything else that happens to us in our healthcare journey, connect with other patients who've been through it? Um, in the pregnancy use case, which I'll kind of double click on again because it's so top of mind for me um i felt like the support of the other women that i had in my life who were also moms was just completely invaluable and yet so much of this happens today on facebook um, which i think is the wrong place for it mm. so um i think community is going to be a big area in women's health um and then i also think that you know the role of the midwife has been overlooked um, in other countries outside of the US midwives are both kind of more common um, there's a lot more midwives and they they have a much more central role in the in the birthing process and so you know not the right thing for all women but for, for those who you could benefit from that kind of care I think midwives doulas lactation consultants all these people are, are so important and so how do you kind of leverage this group um, and make it more affordable because many of these folks are not covered by insurance um, so i think that's the other big opportunity those are great points uh, we've got a number of people on this call who are working in either the behavioral health space or the women's health, women's health space and so I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, drop your questions in the chat so that we can start bringing you into this conversation as well. I want to hear your voices. Um, I want to go back to something you said about Omers uh, having its office in Canada, uh, you know, being um, rooted in Canada and the UK as well, uh, which, which I, I assume gives the company a, this global focus, this understanding of, you know, what can we learn from um, our investments in the UK and bring that over to Canada, et cetera. That's been part of Startup Health's uh, ethos and thesis from the very beginning, this belief that we can really uh, have leapfrog progress when we, when we learn from one another as global citizens. So I wonder if you could speak to the importance of that and kind of how that plays into your, your thinking. And you've already sort of talked about, hey, they use midwives uh, differently in the UK and the, in the United States. You know, how is that cultivated and how important is that? 
Yeah. Um, well, at a high level, I think we can we can be humble enough here in the U.S. to learn from other countries. Um, so I think, you know, when I go to the U.K. and I meet with startups there, I'm 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 often amazed by you know the level of of progress they're making in certain areas and the things that the system is enabling them to do um, that that we don't really have kind of any support for here. Um, so, you know, just learning from, from other, other folks and other, you know, parts of the world and seeing what they're doing right. And then how do we do that here? Um, so definitely that's a part of it. And then, you know, we've seen in digital health, um, companies come from other geos and move into the U S and do very well here. So, you know, just to use a few examples from the UK, look at calm, look at quit genius. Um, these are businesses that I think came here and just like, blew the competition out of the water. Um, so, you know, you can certainly be successful with that strategy, um, but it does lead to some big questions that startups have to answer. You know, who, who are your investors? Do they have that global focus? And then, you know, do you stay where you are and send out kind of a, a GM or someone like that to build your, your team in this other geo, or do you make the jump yourself? And, and how do you kind of structure your team? Um, so I don't claim to have the answer for any of that because I think for, for every business it might be different um, and it, it just very much depends on you know who you're selling to and, and who your customers are but um, it's one that I think about all the time and I, I ask startups whenever I meet them um, if they are located abroad and have plans to come here to the U.S. That's great. Uh, let's move to some questions in the chat. I want to I want to call on Anne Wanland from Canopy. Anne, if you could come off of mute, uh, explain what you've built, uh, what you're doing, and ask your question. Well, I just you may have seen me just nodding to literally everything you said because uh, first of all, congratulations on your new baby. I'm also a new mom, and that's what motivated me to start Canopy. Um, and so we are digital mental health company focused on the perinatal period. So our ideal situation is kind of universal maternal mental health care. It's just a standard part of pre and postpartum care. Actually, my co-founder is based in the UK. So very interesting, yeah, uh, differences and totally agree the kind of health visitor approach. So, so different. Anyway, just like everything you've said is super um, yeah, interesting and, and resonates so much. But one thing that we're, that one of the many things that you said that, that really resonates is that for us, you know, providers and health systems really are an important piece of the puzzle because they're the ones interfacing with moms at these really vulnerable moments where, you know, moms are trusting kind of what they're being heard and oh, told. Um, but you're totally right, like, except for a very small sliver of you know, health systems and hospitals that bear risk, you know, they're not incentivized to improve outcomes for moms. And we, we know that, you know, depression and anxiety are linked to physical, you know, um, physical issues as well. Like very, very clear. The research is so clear on that. So I was just wondering, I mean, as you've been thinking about this and the misaligned incentives, especially for, you know, providers and OBs, health systems, hospitals, do you have any kind of thoughts or, or like, what are you kind of thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm just going to, can everybody um, do a little exercise with me where you raise your hand? So I'm going to ask a question. And that question is, 
who should be the provider most responsible for a pregnant mom and uh, a new mom's um, mental health care? Do you think it should be the A, the OBGYN? Do you think it should be B, the pediatrician um, of, the, of the child that is, is at some point born? Or do you think it should be C, the primary care physician? So who wants to raise their hand for the OBGYN? Okay, a few. Who do you, who wants to raise their hand for the child's pediatrician? <laughs> um, and what about the primary care doc? Okay, a lot of PCP supporters. So um, the current standard of care in the US is, is actually, it's the pediatrician that is uh, most right. responsible for this. And it's uh, in the form of a survey that's often given to a new mom where you're asked questions about your uh, your mental health mostly. Are you feeling you know thoughts of despair? Are you considering killing yourself? And by the way, you have to do this in the pediatrician's office in front of your baby and your and your partner. Um, so I, I see that some people have voted pediatrician, but I, I have some problems with that. Um, <laughs> having myself done that, and I, I did not have anxiety and depression, um, and I'm very fortunate um, to have not had that. But in, for me, it sent a very bad message that, you know, while I'm in, at an appointment to talk about the health of my child, I'm being asked about myself, but it felt like I was being asked about myself as kind of a a checklist item um, that was a second order like effect of the visit because the pediatrician has somehow like stumbled upon this as like the thing that they now have to manage. Um, so, you know, I, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. I think it should be the, the physician that's responsible for the mom that is also responsible for their mental health. And there needs to be some kind of, you know, process baked into our current system where women are asked about this and have their own set of resources separate from their child and separate from their family um, so that they can be open and honest about what what they're going through and that doesn't exist so I would love to see and you know with your business if, if you are interested in tackling that if you are tackling that like definitely reach out um, um, but yeah I mean to your point about you know these amazing providers like there are huge limitations um, in this system and they do the best they can, but it's things like that bundled payment that I talked about that makes it very, very challenging for them to show up in the ways that they want to show up. And I think many of them would love to do multiple visits in that first week. And in other countries, we even visit women um, in the home and they see what the home environment looks like. We don't do that in the US. So, you know, I'm sure that, that these incredible providers would love to do it, but we have to figure out a way to, to get them paid to do it. Very nice. Thanks for the question, Anne. And uh, Christy, I love that the journalist is coming out with the on-the-fly <laughs> research. Um, and I think very telling that people were pretty split. Uh, there's a lot of just lack of clarity, lack of understanding, who does what. Um, I, think, I think very, very interesting. Um, I want to go to a question from In Recovery. I've got one qu uh, question from two folks from In Recovery. So maybe David Sarabia, founder, can wrap those up and, and come off mute and ask them. Hey, sorry, I was turning off the air conditioner. It's too loud. Um, hey, how are you? Good to meet you. Thanks so much for, for this session. And um, just first of all, I want to commend you on your approach. I think it's super important that you're 
actually giving a shit about the spaces that you're that you're looking to invest in. It's it's so rare because uh, you know we we talk to VCs and they they just claim to be impact investors or they claim to be this or that and and they just kind of scratch the surface of of let's say even substance use disorder, which is so so complex. Um, having lived it myself, so in recovery, just in a nutshell, we're uh, we're helping providers digitize. Uh, we really feel that that there's a big need for for the actual care providers, the actual nurses and and, and staff to to be equipped with better technology, as you were talking about with with the uh, with your experience uh, having a baby. Which congratulations. Um, my my question is, you know, how do you see the this trend that you know we, we I, I see that. There's obviously a big need for 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 better access to care, uh, but a lot of a lot of our peers, let's say the space and the and the addiction tech space, are focused on replacing completely the need for let's say going to treatment, going to an inpatient stay, where it's super important for certain people that have a really severe case of of substance use disorder to actually disconnect and go. Um, what's your take on that? And like, you know, you know, mo most of the investments that we see are, are going towards that direction are going towards that hybrid model of tech slash provider. Um, you know, I just want to kind of get, get a sense of, of, of where your mind is there. Yeah. Um, so I think there's uh, multiple parts of that question. Um, firstly, I'll say that when, you know, we, we spoke to a lot of patients who were in recovery um, and it's, oftentimes a, a lifelong journey. Um, I asked about some of these virtual only models and, you know, a lot of them, a lot of folks said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, we get this notion around stigma and this, this could seem like a, a safe place for some people, but they also, I, I heard across the board that they felt like it was just a huge risk um, to, you know, go with a startup, go with a, a provider that they don't know because it's a, it's a matter of life or death. For a lot of these patients and so that the change was you know what if this new new provider who wasn't meeting them in person um you know didn't get the full story and then put them on a medication that was not correct and what and what would happen there and it was just like incredible fear of like what that change would bring so a lot of people were willing to drive hours out of their way to see the provider that they had a relationship with because it was just worth it to them um and so, you know, I took that feedback seriously and everybody's different. So maybe if we had talked to a different set of patients, I would have heard something else, but that's what I heard from, you know, the, the group that, that I talked to. So I'll share that I have that, that bias from just hearing that patient perspective over and over. And then to your question of, you know, virtual only versus kind of brick and mortar, and is there a need for inpatient? I think it just depends on on the condition um you know on the you there are some areas where i've seen a lot of money go into kind of inpatient and residential and have that sort of pushed on people because it's very lucrative um but may not be the right thing and in fact virtual is is could be a better alternative all around um and you can see the benefit to it um when you know virtual could allow someone to stay in their home environment and perhaps experience a kind of treatment that's more collaborative with the people in their life but for other conditions and, and other patients, it's very important that they have that experience of, of inpatient. And I know that my fund is not, you know, we're not um, fixated on virtual only because it scales faster. Like we just don't think that way. You know, if, you, if, if the problem requires a services heavy approach and that's what the data tells us and that's what patients are telling us, then we will we'll invest in that. Um, whatever is, you know, the, the best thing and the right thing in that specific case.
yeah, really meeting people where they're at. I, I love that approach a lot. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to connect after the call. It's, it'd be really great to to show you what we're building. Great. Appreciate the I'll question, David. And thank you awesome. so much. Thanks, David. A lightning round question for you from Vitali from PigPug. I'll just say it from the chat. Do you invest in startups that have hardware uh, versus software? Um, we're open to it. Um, I I have like, a, I guess like not as much experience with hardware. And I know some investors have some heartburn around it, but open to it. Um, I think it would be a, a case by case thing, but um yeah, definitely. If you're working on some hardware, um, feel free to reach out. Cool. Um, okay. And then another question from Robbie uh, Bustami from Biotics AI. Robbie, why don't you come off mute and uh, explain what you do and ask your question? Sure. Hi, Chrissy. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. And um, yeah, I've been following your work for some time and uh, really appreciate everything you've been doing in the space. Um, so I'm the CEO of Biotics AI. Uh, we have built an AI platform to uh, help uh, to help facilitate uh, care for uh, patients uh, going through prenatal care. Um, my question is specifically around um, some of the uh, problems in communication that we've noticed within prenatal care. Uh, so patients uh, going so pregnant mothers interface with a multitude of different types of healthcare professionals, uh, as you mentioned, you know midwives, um, but you know it, you know there's sonographers, obstetricians. It could be. Uh, MFMs and you know, and then there's a lot of variability between all of that, depending if they're high risk or low risk, and um, so on. But a big problem we've noticed is uh, under communication between uh, healthcare professionals and patients, uh, and some of the implications that can come with uh, under communication. Um, so, uh, for example, you know, there, you know, uh, you know, there's variability in uh, the results of ultrasound screenings, for example, whether it be like measurements and and so forth. And uh, we've seen some examples where patients. Uh, have been given information that isn't 100% correct, and then that has actually led to uh, further problems and has actually exasperated problems, both uh, from, a, from a mental perspective, but it's also led to issues such as uh, high blood pressure in those patients and so forth. And, um, and that's actually led to additional problems, which is preeclampsia. And, and it's all really stemmed from just like problems in communication and problems and, uh, you know, when it comes to interfacing with uh, a multitude of different healthcare professionals. Um, all kind of, you know, trying to provide the same type of care to, to a patient, but with different backgrounds. So I was wondering if, if you've seen, if you've personally kind of looked deep into this, this problem, and then if, uh, you know, what your perspective is on here and, and some of the solutions you've actually come across uh, in addressing this issue. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's a, it's a big problem and there's all kinds of variability that or is not explained to patients. And a lot of that is true across not just kind of this maternity area, but healthcare in general, um, where physicians take kind of a paternalistic approach and they're like, well, I've seen the data, so you don't need to, and you know, just do what I tell you to do, <laughs> um, versus kind of being more um, collaborative with their patients, um, which I think is the, the better model. Um, so I think it's a problem. I mean, I, the complication of this area, which I'm sure you've seen, is just that like a lot of women come into it with a very strong philosophy around the type of experience that they want to have. Um, and you're told to come up with a birth plan and all this stuff. And in reality, you don't really have too much control about what's going to happen to you. Um, so I had a whole birth plan around a natural delivery, and then I had a breech baby. And I, my OB was came like into the room. I remember she had like printed out like stacks of research and she was like, okay, 
here's a study about why, you know, it's really unsafe to, to deliver a breech baby vaginally. And here's another one. And here's another study. And was like, just like giving me, you know, data point after data point. And I was like, look, like I'm so you had me at hello. I'm having a C-section, like, you know, don't worry about it. We're good. Um, and she was like, oh, phew, you know, like I've had to go through this with so many women who just are so fixated on this plan and they don't know how to adapt. And it, it makes sense. I mean, it's an emotional time, but I think that just is an example that I've seen a lot of this communication gap and why OBs can have a really tricky time with this group of patients because of that. It's just the, the expectations that we all set up around our birth without the sort of willingness to be flexible and the and the openness to, to seeing the data and having a discussion about what might be the right safe thing um and by the way i'll share that i have a lot of women friends who have gone ahead and done the thing that you know they were planning to do and wanted to do against the advice of their medical team um and you know sometimes it's gone fine and sometimes it hasn't but it's just it's just you know if you if you spend time with obs like they'll tell you it's just it's a huge challenge to deal with that and i'm sure it is in other aspects of healthcare as well but particularly with with childbirth appreciate the uh, question robbie i've got a couple more questions in the chat but i want to take a quick detour to talk about how your time as a journalist has informed how you look at startups work with startups and i wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about um, kind of how you think through startup storytelling now, how you use your experience as a journalist to maybe counsel startups about how they build their brand, how they uh, really explain what they're doing. What are some of your sort of top words of wisdom? This is a big question. So, so much to say. I'm just going to be really honest with this crowd because I, I get the sense that- We love it. We love honesty. You all like this. So, um, I get asked a lot about how do I get my startup in the press? That's like the question I get asked almost every day. And to, in my mind, it's always the wrong question. Like if you, if you go at it from like, how do I promote myself? It's just, you know, it's just like the non-starter because literally everyone on this call like wants that. Um, and there's beyond this call, there's thousands of, you know, there, think about how many digital health startups there are and think about how many people there are in the news media that write about those startups. And you will see it's, you know, there's 10 over here and there's thousands over here. So if you go in with that approach, like it's, it's a non-starter. Um, the question I wish I was asked was, how can I be helpful to the 10 journalists over here who are doing this job? And I did this job for many years and it's a hard job like really truly it is like you are you know you're getting a lot of pressure to like produce non-stop kind of news and you know it's not just like this funding round it's it's I had to kind of you know I was doing stories where very big very well resourced companies were extremely upset about the fact that I was doing them but that was that was the job and so you know, imagine if there were all these people that wanted to support me in doing that job and how and what a difference that would have made. And there were some, honestly, there were some. And those people, I was like, oh, my God, I love you. Like, you are my new best friend. Like, you know, and the thing that I cared about when I was a journalist wasn't like, let me write about this funding round. The thing I cared about was like, how do I make healthcare better? How do I expose what's going on in the underbelly of this industry to like somehow move the needle? So the stories that I felt most proud of were the ones where I was like, 
whoa, look at this crazy bill that this patient is, is, has just received that they should not have received. And like, I would write about that and the, and the patients, hundreds of thousands could be forgiven overnight. And I would, I would go to bed feeling happy that I had made a difference. So I think it's just understanding what a journalist is. They're not a marketer. They are like, they pick this job and they're getting paid like crap to do the job and working long hours to, to make something better to like, you know, many of them feel that they're in the business of accountability. Some of them feel they're in the business of sharing information and both of those are noble goals. So align yourself with that, you know, that's because that's ultimately, you know, the, the person that that's where their heart is at. Um, oh, so, yeah. so how do you do that? How do you align yourself with that goal? Practically um, speaking. So, you know, I just told you kind of the, the mentality of the typical journalist. So most of them are getting hundreds, if not thousands of emails a day from professional kind of PR agencies. And some of them are great and some of them are not great. And the not great ones will buy media lists and then um, write a paragraph and then put it in mail merge and then just hit like a button and that all goes out. So I would get hundreds of those emails a day. Um, and most of them were just like delete, delete, delete. But then every so often somebody would come along and they'd be like, Hey, I'm in, you know, maternal health. Like, let me tell you about X, Y, and Z. How, like, I've been learning all these cool things, all these interesting things. I would love to just sit down with you for an hour. And like, I don't need to tell you about my startup, but I would like to tell you about this crazy space that I'm working in. And you can call me anytime you want. And like, I am here. And so, you know, those people hmm. I would, I would cherish because they were my my eyes and ears and and they were the people who helped me make sense of all of this PR, you know, that I was being pitched all the time because you know your your reputations online every single day when you put a post out and if you're out there saying Theranos is the greatest thing since sliced bread and then it blows up a month later, that's really embarrassing and so you need people who are going to keep you honest. You need people who are going to tell you the truth. Um so, you know, that like everything i think that's a better approach and and one that that will kind of take you much further and don't outsource it like it's your job you're a founder like you mm. cannot outsource the public face of your company like this is the thing that when people google your business is going to come up so you know I, I i would never like give anybody else license to talk about what i'm doing without making sure that that person like is a hundred percent aligned with, you know, my business, my goals. Like, so that's, those are two things I always say. And, um, if I'm in a, love that, I, I love that <laughs> advice, Chrissy, that you can't outsource that messaging. Uh, some of that storytelling really has to come from the top and that authenticity, the, the sincerity of that story has to come from the top. Um, I'm going to ask a couple more questions from the chat. We've got, uh, Jim Fang from Fixable. Uh, why don't you come off mute and do your thing? Hey, Chrissy, how's it going? This is a great chat um, and, a, and a topic, um, you know, dear to heart to me. Um, and for myself, uh, we're fixable. We, uh, we're a pain and prevention platform. One of the solutions we have is for pre and postnatal uh, programming. We help engage with, um, with better, uh, with augmented reality and the machine learning to make sure people are doing their programming and rehab properly. Um, my question to you is actually a little bit more broad. Um, love to hear your feedback from what you've seen within the industries uh, to be able to, you were saying change from, a, uh, you know, in the industry of healthcare. Do you think products like ours, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm treating 
people like you and me or family members and getting people better. So we're very consumer facing, but the insurance dollars are paying for a lot of these services. Do you think the bigger battle for you know startups like us is to go directly to consumer and really wow them, get them really, really loving the product, like what they did at Calm and maybe um, even Headspace for mental health. Um, and then and then go up the chain and work with the companies. Now the gap adoption to the companies and then maybe some of the insurers. Or is it like the you think it's more important to or hit both ways? And it could be a double-edged sword, I guess. Um, or, or is it more important to get insurance adoption in the beginning, run pilots, and then get uh, show the ROI there and then work your way down? So love this question. You would get a different answer from every investor that you ask, but I'm in exactly. <laughs> um, so I would go direct to consumer. Reason being, um, there is there's nothing to hide. Like it's your product is what's on display. So you are going to be very disciplined as a team to create something that's got an incredible user experience that really resonates um, with your with the patient or the or the customer. Um, and that is a very good thing. Plus, I've seen lots of good examples recently of, of companies starting with direct-to-consumer. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, they'll go to a health plan and be like, you know, here's like a bunch, a massive dump of data on like all these people that, you know, are technically your members that we've been treating for years. And look at the success that we've been having with them. Like, don't you want to be a part of that? And to me, that's a very different conversation than like, hey, we're a new company. Can we do a pilot um, where they might say yes, but then like TBD on do they ever pay after that pilot's done? And, you you know, it's really hard to find the right advocate within the plan. And um, you can get customized to like an inch of your lives. And like for some businesses, that's the right thing to do. But um, I've, I've seen a lot of examples of this kind of D to C and then moving into the, the B2B side recently where I'm like, that's the way to go. That's great. Great question, Jim. I uh, appreciate it. I think we've got time for one question. If we're relatively efficient about it, Peter Aryan from Salk, if you could come off Hello. mute, ask your question. Awesome. Thank you so much, Logan. Uh, so at Salk, we provide direct to consumer at home STI testing and behavioral health support for Gen Zers. So our focus is really building a community that's inclusive and sort of destigmatizes sexual health through platforms like TikTok and our podcasts. Uh, our prep kits just got covered by insurance, uh, which is huge for us because you know that is something that we really want to tap into as a lifestyle brand. Uh, do you see providers expanding into other at-home testing areas based off of our market being sensitive? with paying out of pocket, it's definitely something that, um, you know, I always think about constantly in the future. Yeah, I do. I do see um, an expansion into other at-home testing. Um, you've seen, you know, things like strep um, be kind of allowed at home, done by a consumer. We've seen a lot of it with COVID. We've seen it with urine analysis, like you said, PrEP as well. Um, so I think that is kind of where things are going. It's always going to happen more slowly than you would think or want. Um, and so I've seen companies do some really interesting things around, um, you know, could we could we get somehow a phlebotomist like on the move, like, you know, in a mobile van showing up at people's homes because sometimes you need blood and, um, 
there's an interesting business I just looked at recently that was trying to do kind of a version of, of true pill, but for more the lab space. So just making it really easy for telemedicine companies to, to do diagnostic work at the patient's home. Um, and I think that's kind of going to be a growing investable area as well. Um, so yes, but slowly would be my answer. Cool. Thank you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, we have just a few remaining minutes. I want to open it up to the folks on the call to really share a sort of greatest insight from the conversation. If there's something that you heard that you'd like to reflect back that was sort of meaningful to you, you can drop that in the chat. I may call on a couple people from the chat that we didn't get to hear from, hear their questions and give them one last opportunity. Um, I say for myself, what two things that I jotted down that I'm going to go away with uh, a is this idea of really um, doing deep, deep research. You said, oh, apologize. That's the, that's the, the Baltimore geo. Um, doing deep, deep research is six months of heads down, deep dive uh, into an area so that when you meet with a startup, um, you're asking some questions that, that maybe they haven't even thought of before. And um, uh, that's inspiring. I think, I think things are only getting more complex as we try to uh, tackle lay, uh, issues beneath the issues beneath the issues. And then you also mentioned uh, this idea of just becoming an ally to the folks you're trying to reach in the media, uh, not just trying to receive, 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 but really looking for what you can, what you can bring to somebody. Um, those are my two. I'll jump to Chelsea Rowe uh, uh, has an insight here. You can come up mute. Okay. Yes. Hi, my name is Chelsea. I I'm the founder of a health tech company that addresses the root cause of chronic health conditions. So it's a platform to, it's mainly women. So insomnia, migraines, digestive issues, insomnia, you name it. Um, but yeah, my, the, what I think was interesting is just sharing insights instead of, you know, just always selling your company. I, I spoke to a, a thousand six hundred women in the last year who are really struggling in the healthcare system to find answers, bouncing around to different doctors who, unfortunately, medication is our only answer. Um, so yeah, I think just sharing those insights and what's the real pain in the market, I think, is uh, helpful advice. So I appreciate that. Great, yeah, and those women are vulnerable to a lot of like scammy stuff. From my uh, CNBC days, I did some reporting on this, so you know, that could also be uh, an interesting, you know, kind of theme or, or set of kind of questions that, that you could help a journalist work through. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we see where it's like people are just taking all kinds of random supplements that may not necessarily be doing anything or doing all kinds of at-home tests, but they have no idea. They're just kind of guessing on everything, right? Um, and they just end up wasting all this money and becoming more frustrated. So it's definitely a lot. So thank you. And Natalie Davis, you mind coming off mute and uh, sharing your insight. Uh, hi there, I'm Natalie Davis, a 20-year pediatrician and a co-founder of Prevent Scripts, where we help primary care providers identify and intervene with their patients that are at risk for diabetes and hypertension, including a remote monitoring uh, component. And just what you said about call me anytime is what the journalist really needs to hear is they need expertise and they have deadlines. So, you know, just being available, making yourself available, call me if you need me um, is the way to go. Yeah. And you're a pediatrician. So, so many topics that, that you could weigh in on as well. And there's just always a need for 
know, think about all the storylines around kids and COVID and, you know, so many other things. So there's always a need for expertise like yours. And just being in the being in that flow is good, like regardless of whether or not there's a specific mention of your business. Appreciate that, Dr. Davis. Uh, we might have time for one more. Uh, we've had great comments coming in the chat this session. Really appreciate everyone being uh, really on it, really interactive this time. Uh, Dr. Faroki from uh, In Recovery, why don't you go ahead and share your thought? Yeah, hi, Chrissy. I've been a huge fan of yours. Uh, I follow you, Alyssa, and Dina on Twitter all the time. Um, so constantly been learning from you guys. Um, you know, I uh, I was discussing with a ninth grade teacher, a friend of mine uh, who works at a, at a Manhattan high school, and we were talking about how, you know, many of her students are going through substance abuse and depression and uh, suicide and things of this nature. And I really enjoyed that insight of, you know, companies partnering with schools, whether it be middle school, high school, college, universities. So really want to thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and wow, it's, it's so sad just thinking about the next generation. All this Facebook news has me really down too. I think we all knew it for years, but then seeing it kind of the effect that it has on teenage girls, it's, um, it's going to be, you know, I think we made it tricky for the, for that generation. And I'm looking forward to having more Gen Z voices too in the flow. Uh, Christy, any, uh, give you the last word here, any final words uh, of wisdom or insight for our uh, founders on the call? Um, my final thing would be, um, you know, having seen now quite a number of kind of pitches on the investing front and a lot of them on the journalism front, it would be to always start with your personal story. That should always be the first thing that you share because then you're getting people's sort of hearts and minds like attached to, you know, the why of why have you chosen to do this business and then talk about your business. Like it's, it's been surprising that not everybody does that, but I think, I think that's how to kind of connect right off the bat. So that's my kind of parting piece of advice. Love it. Chrissy, you have given us a ton to think about. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk about your, your role uh, as an investor, but also how your experience as a journalist plays into that. Thank you so much for um, not just sharing with us, but really the work that you're doing to bring more attention and investment to women's health and to behavioral health uh, there at Omer's Ventures. Thanks, Logan. This was a real treat. Um, reach out at any time.